Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator, New York Times bestselling author Anthony Boza, and tonight's guest, Wyclef Jean. Yeah, yeah. How y'all doing out there? Hi, everybody. <laughs> Good to see y'all. I just put this thing up on my Twitter, like purposely waited, like, because I ain't want like a thousand dudes outside. Like, I'm Wyclef Cousin. I need to get in now. <laughs> now. <laughs> They're going to have a mob here anyway when the iPhone comes out, so let's... Take it easy on these Apple people. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks for coming down, guys. Um, I'm very proud of this book, as is Mr. Clef. And um, we're here to, he's going to read a little bit out of it. And um, then I'm going to ask him some questions because I know everything about him because I wrote the book with him. You don't know everything about me, man. Except Almost everything, everything he told me. That's true. <laughs> Just what he told me. <laughs> Um, do you uh, want to start with that with the intro? Or, yeah, uh, we'll get into you know questions what? After this, I'm gonna read something to you from this book, and it's deep because, like, when my mama told me this story, it, it just threw me off, and it was like actually how I was being born, and you know, like we just come to be, and then when the parents is like, you know, how you was born, and and it really tripped me out a little bit, you know, and um. So basically, when I was being born, I remember my dad waiting outside. I don't remember, but, you know, he was waiting outside. And just listen to this. My father waited outside the hut, pacing and listening, unsure of what to do. Did not sit well with my father because he was a man of action and a man of words, like his father before him. The two of them represented the pillars of my characters. My grandfather, he devoted himself to leading his village as their voodoo priest. My father chose to lead as well, devoting himself instead to Christianity against his father's wishes. In this moment of need, he turned to his faith. That was important to me because at the end of the day, it's sort of like my grandfather, my father defied my grandfather because my, my, my grandfather wanted my father to be a voodoo priest. And then I defied my father because my father wanted me to be a minister. So it's deep with that circle of train, you know? And all of you, uh, all of you were leaders in your own way. That's something we keep yes. coming back to in the book, yeah, man. you know? You became yeah. a leader in your scene, and you've got a lot of your father and your grandfather in you. You're both. Yeah. I would say to my dad, the toughest thing is this tough love, you know? Um, one time I was watching a documentary, I think, um, the boxer, Roy Jones. Mm -hmm. And at a time, his father was really tough love with him. And I told people at the high, height of my career with the Fugees, my father never, ever came to a show. Like, all this time I'm blowing up on TV, he was not worried about that. His whole thing was like, when are you coming back to the church? The Lord is waiting for you. When are you coming to the church? And it was the most insane thing. You could think about because when a man puts, you know, his faith, like my dad was a man, he put his faith before everything, you know? Yeah. Um, tell, him, uh, tell him how your dad found out you were famous. You know, <laughs> so, a good one. No, it's so funny because my dad, even though he was a minister, he worked, um, he was like, beyond a mechanic, he used to like clean cars and do different things like that. And one of the companies was Don Warnock. And one day, my dad is working, and he's working with a Mexican brother. 
and they hooking up the cars. And then the Mexican brother look at my dad. He say, you know, guess now, you look like that big famous guy from the Fuji's. Some guy named White Clef Gene. And, 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 and my dad looks at him and he says, that's my son. He said, no, 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 that's not your son. If that's your son, you would not be working here. You know? So, <laughs> then it's funny. So when my dad got home, he called me and he was like, so what do you do for a living? What is this you do? <laughs> what is this you do for a living? <laughs> yeah, but that's just to show you the extreme. So even at the height, my dad always believed in waking up, going to church, getting up, going to work. No matter what was happening, he, if he was not going to a job, he didn't feel good, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why he didn't understand that, you know, you might be playing in Amsterdam, but you should be home for church the next day. <laughs> You're yeah, like, Dad, you, I don't think you get this. No, nah, you, <laughs> you had to be in church on Sundays no matter what. Yeah. yeah. And the church, I mean, it was a huge part of, uh, it, it, you know, of your upbringing in every way. Um, let's talk about all the different musical training you got in and out of the church, because you were in three or four different bands at the same time growing up, all kinds of styles, and um, you eventually brought all of that to everything you do. But uh, I always found that fascinating. You just switched gears. So yeah. tell me about some of those bands. Yeah. So I left Haiti when I was, I think, like nine years old. When I came here to America, my, my, my father started a church inside of the projects, and it was like, the Nazarene church inside of the projects. I was in Marble Hole Projects in the hood. And, you know, the church started with like three or four of us, you know. Um, and automatically, I saw some accordion in the corner. And I was like, well, who's that accordion for? My dad was like, for you. You learn how to play accordion now. You pick it up. So picking up this big wah, wah accordion, as it started going, my father was part of a missionary group. Inside of this missionary group, you have people coming in from Ohio, Chicago, different places. And this is actually where I got introduced to Christian rock. So I was listening to bands like Petra, Striper, Amy Grant, different things <laughs> like that, right? True story. So this is all true. So now I started listening to rock. So I'm a hardcore rock and roll fan. Pink Floyd, Metallica, Led Zeppelin. Now, every Sunday, I have to sing in the church. So now I had an advantage in the church because I know they couldn't speak English very well. But we loved rock music so good. So what I used to do was take the rock words and convert them into, like, Jesus words. So as long as they hear Jesus, it's fine. So I'd be like, go ahead, jump, jump for Jesus Christ. You know, so... <laughs> so right. As long as my dad heard Jesus Christ, he'd look at me and say, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so we started off with, of course, playing rock. I remember picking up, like, Michael Jackson. Like, remember the Beat It solo, the rock solo, and Beat It. I was so obsessed, I had to learn the solo. And at the time, in my father's church, you got to understand, my father, we, when we left Brooklyn, we came to New Jersey. I remember one day we was passing by a funeral home. This is a burnt-down funeral home, and my dad looks, and he says he has a revelation. This is where the church is going to be. My dad moved his entire family into a funeral home. <clears throat> we was moved into a burnt-down funeral home with coffins still in the basement in the funeral home. 
And it's it's so inside of this funeral home, I was feeling like the hood version of the Adam family. You feel me? Because every day we gotta wake up and then go to school. So what I would do is look out the window and wait for all the kids to finish pass. And then me and my brothers, we would sneak outside of the funeral home. So now inside of this church, before I would leave, I would go to my dad's pulpit and I would take the microphone, which was used for the congregation. It was a gold microphone. So I would take the microphone, put it in my backpack, then watch the kids leave, and then I head out to school. So by the time I got to school, my school, it was all about, like, battling. So if you saw, like, the Eminem the story, like, Eight Miles, picture that times a trillion. So in high school, for acceptance, this is why I started battle rapping, because I wanted them to respect me, respect my culture. So I became real intense in battle rapping, you know, my name being, like, Nell Eastwick-Lev Jean. My first name is actually Nell. So in high school, they was calling me Nell. I was like, man, this is not a good swag name for rapping. I got to come up with something harder than that. So then I was like, okay, so I'm going to call myself Nelly Nell. So I became that MC, and those that knew me in high school knew I had a briefcase. There was absolutely nothing in the briefcase. But it and looks the briefcase important. had this microphone in it. So when dude comes say, yo, Clef, so-and-so want to battle you, I would pop my briefcase, and everybody say, oh, man, you don't want him to pull a gold microphone, man. He pull that gold microphone, something's going to happen. So, <laughs> so I would take this gold microphone out, and I start going crazy. I became the number one battle rapper inside of that school. But while I was battle rapping, I had a music teacher who more was interested in what I was learning at home and, like, how did you learn how to play these piano chords? Do you want to study jazz? At the time, I didn't think jazz was cool. But she said, look, if you join a jazz band, you get a chance to go to California. Never in my life before have I left the country since I came to, to America. So I joined the jazz bands, started playing upright bass, and basically became a master of sheet music. So I don't know how I picked it up so quick. So by the time I became like an early senior, I was very fast with reading sheet music and everything. Then I had a problem with my jazz teacher because everything in jazz just was too orthodox for me. And I was like, you know, he was like, this is how you have to play. But I'm like, what are we playing? The things that we playing, somebody made it up and they had their own mindset. So I remember one day the jazz teacher wasn't there and we was auditioning for the big competition in California. So I figured I'm gonna make my own rendition of uh, Birdland. And I'm like, yo, at bar 32, I need y'all to flip it. Go into some boom, 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 bap, boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. So the craziest thing was now I'm in California, this jazz competition, and I look at my boys, and at bar 32, we flipping on some hip-hop jazz stuff. Can you imagine how my jazz teacher felt? Afterwards, of course, he wanted to choke me to death but we ended up winning, you know what I'm saying? The competition in a sense. And so I was a rapper. I was a jazz major. I was a rocker. And at the same time, there was a small group bubbling called the Fugees. So um, I was in my dad's church, and Prize calls me up and says, yo, I'm with these two girls, you know what I'm saying? I want you to come by the studio. And we young. So I said, yo, how they look? 
He like, yo, man, they look fine. I said, all right, man, I'm going to be up there. So I show up in the studio, you know, and there's two girls. One is Lauren Hill. The other is a girl named Marcy. Two incredible vocalists at the time. So I see the girls and the producer. How many of y'all know Cool in the Gang? Like, so, so the actual producer was LeJam from Cool in the Gang. And after we did some, he was like, you know what, y'all should basically stick together. Um, and this is how the Fuji started. But my greatest memory of the music industry was when Nelson Mandela got out of prison. And this is when I got my first record deal. It wasn't even the Fuji's. I was signed to a small label called Big Beat Records. If you ever want to hear the original Wyclef song, it was actually a house record. So everybody doing house now, my original record was a house record called Out of the Jungle. So this is some of some of the bands that I came from. I was in a, in a band with five guys. I hated the band. It was like five of us, you know what I mean? I basically had to write everything. So I wrote the Spanish part, the, the, every part that I wrote. Kind of a boy band, right? Let's it was a boy the band. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, they straight up. suits and things. Don't think I'm soft, because I was in a boy band, man. I would never. <laughs> it was a straight up boy band, and I had to write all the parts for everybody. So. I would have to write the Spanish part. So I'd be like, mira, amiga, buenos días, señorita. ¿Cómo está usted y su familia? Estoy yendo bien en el micrófono, you know? But I was like, why can't I do all the parts, you know? And the manager was like, no, the person that looks Spanish must do the Spanish part. The person that looks French must do the French part. You will do the Creole part, you know what I mean? So this is some of the, the musical upbringing that I was into. He, he put you guys in tuxes and stuff, right? Definitely, that we was, was the, they hated yeah, that. we was definitely in tuxes, and I'm gonna take you back even further than that. Was my first off Broadway play that Quincy Jones actually got a chance to come see. So go back er, before Fuji's, before the Club Twelve, Wyclef Jean, Lauren Hill, MC Light, Lisa Carson, everybody who was that part of that play ended up blowing up later. It was the Shakespearean, wasn't it? It was. Um, yeah, it was the Shakespearean, uh, the Twelfth Night. Night. Yeah. So we took the the Twelfth Night play, and we've and and I rewrote the entire play into a hip hop street setting. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the making of the score. I'm sure a lot of people want to talk about that. Um, the greatest stuff when we were doing the book was was all of the great memories you have, just like the vibe of the neighborhood and everything, and how that really yeah. became part of the music and all the different characters coming in and out. Um, any of those, you know, it, is it, I think we recreated that time pretty well in the book, but uh, it just sounded like such a fertile, interesting time for you as a person and um, the neighborhood and all the other people coming around and stuff like that. Well, I mean, for me, you gotta understand, uh, we was in 107 and the area where we was at, we had a crack spot that was on the right side. And right besides the crack spot where the fiends were at, we had a small garage in the front where we kept all the pit bulls. And then we had the studio, which was in, in the garage, which we basically left the door open. So anybody in the neighborhood, you was free to come to the studio at any time. So for me, that time, the reason why we did that, we just basically wanted to bring a vibe to the neighborhood because we didn't want the shooting and everything. So we were called the refugees, and the other clique was called the outsiders. So like when Eminem spent time in Jersey, Eminem spent time with the outsiders. See, the outsiders was the other crew, so you had the, the refugees was one crew. 
and it was two different styles of 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 rapping. The outsiders more, you know, they they reminded me of they was very philosophical and how they was painting the picture of the streets, but they was very witty coming from another side. And then you had the refugees. And so for me, all I could remember about is that basement, how many people came just through that basement. And it was my uncle's basement. And the fact that my dad kicked me out the church and he didn't want us doing hip hop. So we went inside of this basement. And, and understand, a lot of people have to understand at this time, when I decided that I'm going to do beats, right? And this is some of the stuff that drove me crazy while I started getting just other people and saying, okay, you know what, program the drums, do this, start doing beats, because I'm going to show you how insane I was mentally. When you're listening to the score, right, and you're listening to Ready or Not, I'm in the hood in Newark, New Jersey. The sample that you hear from the song is from a band called Inya, all the way in the other side of the world. I'm sitting back in the hood, and I ain't going to lie. I'm chilling. We got the kids here. I ain't going to say what I was doing. And I'm watching the Relaxing. TV, and I hear this sample comes in. I take this sample, go upstairs in my small room, turn on my MPC 60, and just start to program a very simple beat. Lauren walks in, and she's just like, ready or not, here I come. This is the vibe of how the whole score was being created. So at the end of the day, it was probably the most magical time that I've had besides running for president thus far. For me, that was, you know, that was a time where it was like you wasn't thinking about anything. It's more like you was doing. Now, the thing about the Fugees, you talk about the score all the time. But if you really want to talk about the Fugees, you have to talk about blunted on reality. Do you know how hard it is for a hip-hop group to say that they're going to come in the music industry and they put out a revolutionary CD, which is the first one, and we getting a gang of money from a record company, and we decide that you know our first CD is going to be black, um, you know, fight the power, and we're going to stand up for something. So for me, that that always is the most one musically that was periodically one of the most important times for me in life. Absolutely, all the, I mean, all of your influences were coming together, and um, you know, you had the adversity like your dad. Your dad kicked you out. That made you fight. For your for your stuff, um, I'm wondering if you'd ever consider uh, taking a goat along on any of your publicity campaigns again. Well, you know it's um, it's a good story. Yeah, but first, let me just be clear. I love animals. Just so if anybody is like here into animals, like you can Google me and cannabis. Like at one time, I was managing cannabis, and cannabis told me he wanted to be the hardest rapper. I was like, yeah. I said, how hard you want to be? He said, real hard. I said, you know what? I got a lion. If you want, you could Google this. You will see me and Cannabis on stage with a lion at the time that I had. And literally, I brought out a grown lion. And the crowd didn't know if they should applaud or freeze. You know what I'm saying? And I said, now that's hard. So the goat story, basically, the Fugees had not made it yet. And we was on our way to, invited to New York. We was opening up for a group called Jodeci at the time. So Jodeci was equivalent to like 
Devante was like, his swag was like Chris Brown minus the dancing. You know, when it came to producing, he was dope. The reason why I tell you that is I want you to understand what kind of girls is going to show up at this after party as I get into this story. So the Fugees are invited to come open up for Joe to see. No one knows who we are. But when I was in the booger basement, I fell asleep, woke up watching TV, and then I saw a dog, Spuds McKenzie, and the dog had a patch on the side of his face. So I was like, man, if in America a dog could be famous, I damn well could make a goat famous as a mascot. So my idea was that when we would be open enough for Joe to see, I would basically go to a livestock place, bring back a goat put a Fuji t-shirt on the goat with the promotion of whatever we was promoting and bring this goat to the Jodeci after party, right? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, I go to this livestock spot in Newark. And, and keep in mind, because I'm from the village of Haiti, sometimes I just wild out in my mind thinking like I'm still in the village. Because I went and I asked the dude, I ain't even asked him for a cow. I walked in that livestock spot, I said, I, I didn't even ask him for a goat. I was like, yo, yeah, do you have a cow? Yeah. <laughs> and when he showed me the size of the cow, then I remember how big cows get. Then I was like, yo, you do you- You also showed up in your car. Like, yeah. how, do you, how are you gonna get a cow home? <laughs> I said, yo, do you got anything smaller? And I always remember he brought me to the section and he showed me this thing. At the time, I didn't even know it was a goat because it looked weird. It was white. The horns came up. It had red eyes. I said, man, this is going to be perfect. So I was like, yo, what's this? He was like, yo, it's a rare Mexican goat breed. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, that's the one I want. I remember going to my car, and I'm hearing, and I came running back. Homie was about to cut up the goat thinking I wanted to make curry goat. I was like, no, no, no. I want the goat. The way the goat is, I want to transport the goat. Just give me the goat. I take the goat. I I um I put the goat in my car. At this time, you know, me and the goat, we cool. We going back to the hood now. We get back in the hood, right? When we get to the hood, right? So we in the booger basement. My homies are playing basketball. So now I pull up in my hoopty, and I'm like, yo, y'all ain't going to believe what I got in the trunk. And then so they all come crowd around the trunk, and then I open the door, and everybody, what the hell? I said, easy, man, it's a rare Mexican goat, man. That's what the homie told me, and we're gonna use this as a mascot. So now, we take the goat, I give the goat a shower, because at the end of the day, the goat, you know, was not smelling proper if we go on a Jodeci concert. So, <laughs> so we basically, now we take the goat and we head out to this Jodeci concert. At this time, I'm sure Lauren thinks I'm out of my mind. Prize thinks I'm out of my mind. But now if you read the stories of Rome or of different leaders, there come a time where the Caesar loses his mind and nobody could tell him nothing. You know what I'm saying? So it was that period. I just lost my mind. I needed to get a goat to the concert. So we get the goat there, and I remember... My road manager at the time, Hassan Sharif, his job was to get the goat in the club no matter what. He's arguing with the promoter about he has to bring the goat in there. 
And the promoter's like, listen, you can't have animals in the club. There's no license. This is New York. You know what I mean? Eventually, we ended up getting the goat in the club. And it went as followed with the performance. Prize came out first. The DJ set it off a little. And then Prize was like, Lauren, where you at? Lauren. And then Lauren comes out. And I sing because I'm happy. And I sing because I'm free. At this time, the place going bonkers. They don't know who we are, but they feeling it. And they're like, yo, Clef, where you at? Clef, where you at? So now if you know me from back in the days, I was a bit strange. Like I always lived in my brain. I had on my fireman jacket, bald head, looking like onyx, red shades. And I'm standing there with this goat, like, you would think like I got some the worst kind of pit bull that I've just trained to kill in my hand. And they're like, Clef, where you at? So now I go ahead and the goat been cooperating all day, man. And I go ahead to pull a goat, and the goat just looks at me and he turns his whole head around like. <laughs> then I'm like, yo, man, I'm like, I ain't gonna let this goat embarrass me right now. They're like, Clef, where you at? Clef, where you at? So eventually, I picked the goat up, and I, I put the goat on the stage. And you had a dog collar, and you had a chain on it. Yeah, I had the chain on the, the goat. And the goat automatically, think about the club. The club is dark. There's red lights, all pretty women in the front. I remember Red Man was in the back. And all of a sudden, this goat just decides he's going to run on one side of the stage. All of the women, ah! And everybody just started backing up because they didn't know what it was. And I had a thing called show business. The show must go on, you feel me? So that's how I trained the whole Fuji's, no matter what, the show must go on. So we like, boof, baf, another son, I go die, boof, baf, if a sound car. You know, and as we doing that, the girls are like, <laughs> you know, and you got Joe to see different people in the VIP. But at the end of the night and the next day, the point that I was trying to get across did get across when I was hearing across the radio airways. It was like, yo, some crazy group came through here. You know, they had a goat on stage. I think they called the Fudgies. And the single was called Booth Bob. So for me, you know, this is like some of the, <laughs> the, the birth of like the Fujis, you know, that I could remember. Y you were not forgotten. It worked. The goat <laughs> was not forgotten. Um, so, the, you know, the book is full of amazing stories. It was an honor to work with you, him. Uh, and you'll learn, you know, there's tons of good stuff in there. I think now we're going to let you people ask some questions. Um, so let's turn it over. What do you guys got? We have a mic, so just raise your hand. We'll come to you. All right, Cliff, you seem to be a strategist, and you've used strategy to do a lot of things. And the only thing I saw you do with film was it was in Shatters, and Shatter was blew up a whole across. Is there anything for you in terms of films coming up? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say for me, you know, the next phase, you know, this is like Wyclef's next chapter, you know what I mean? So um, my agents always get mad at me because they want me acting more. The problem with me acting is I always get freaked out when they tell me how long I got to be on the set. You know, like sometimes you got to be in the set for months, you know. So as a musician, I just love playing music. Um, 
But uh, definitely in the future, you could look out uh, for me um, more on the screen doing different things. What I love a lot more than actually acting is scoring movies. You know what I mean? I like doing scores for movies, too. Shatters. How hard was it to, uh, like, run for president in Haiti? Oh, that must be your dad. No, no, no. I said you must be her dad. That's the questions my daughter asked. She'd be like, hold on. Well, you know what? When I was running for president, it probably was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Because what happens is, think about it. So as a musician, I'm successful. I love playing music. Every time I show up, they go, we love you, White Club. You're the greatest. And the thing about an artist, an artist likes to be appreciated. So now when it goes from people saying, we love you, and they're like, get out of here. Why are you running for president? You could never be president. You don't have a brain. You're not smart. You should keep rapping, you know? And all of a sudden, you start to think about it, and you say, hold on. Like, why am I really put on earth? So for me, it was the hardest thing, not the fact of running for president, but it was the hardest thing because everything that I fought for my entire life, for my people, I felt like for the first time in my entire life, I was being questioned and I was being challenged. But if I was singing, it was okay. But the minute I decide that, why can't I be president? Why can't you be president? We all have that right if we want to be president, you know? So it was the hardest thing for me, but at the end of the day, it turned out to be the best thing for me. I learned so much running. Thank you. Okay, baby. Hey, how you doing, Mike Leff? Good, how are you? Thank you for coming out. Um, Thank you. I wanted to know how your relationship with your father is um, or w ended up after you defied him and uh, really went against his, what his wishes were. Yeah, I mean, my dad ended up passing away. Um, the it, it, ended, it ended like... I, I would have wanted it to end it if he was going to pass away. So basically, he never came to any of my shows. And I decided to put a show together at Carnegie Hall. Now, a rapper playing at Carnegie Hall didn't really exist at the time. And I'm telling you, putting a show together with the Philharmonic Orchestra and completely taking versions of Bach and reconfigurations, like the most insane thing. I mean, if y'all haven't seen the show, you should see it. Wyclef Live at Carnegie Hall. I picked up the phone, called every musician that I look up to. Stevie Wonder, Whitney Houston, Eric Clapton, Charlotte Church, Destiny Child, everybody, Mark Anthony, list goes on. Orchestrated the show from beginning to end. I asked my dad if he could come to the show. Now, he was like, what show? That's always how it start. I said, Dad, Dad, this is not a hip-hop show. I said, this is a show where I'm going to bring out the Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm going to be playing classical music. And then we have a gospel choir coming. And I didn't even think he was going to come. My dad ended up showing at the show. And I look on the balcony. I see some guy with long beard, you know, long beard, looking like a Philistine. You know, he like... And... Everybody possibly I could think of in my mind was in that audience. 
I blanked everything out of my head. The only thing I was excited about that night, I turned to a little kid. I was like, everyone, we got to stop everything. Everybody stop everything, man. My dad is on the balcony, you know? And he watched the show. He watched me compose, you know? And at the end of the night, you know, now I'm looking for that thing from him. You see what I'm saying? So now finally I'm going to my dad. I want that. You know what I mean? You did it, son, in America. You did it the way. You know what I'm saying? And then he came to me, and I remember him saying, he said, do you know basically what defines, like, a man making it or a person making it? And I was like, no. He says, is when every race comes to see you, every complexion comes to see you, and it's not about the color. It's about the man and the individual. And for me, when he told me that, it was like his way of just telling me, you know what I'm saying, that you're good. And a year after that, he ended up passing away. But it was like, I'm glad that we got a chance to share that moment. The other time that I saw him was when I begged him to come with me to, uh, he never want to come on tour, never. And I said, well, I'm going to be in Rome. And he was like, warm. I go to warm, but I don't go to with you. I go, when I get to warm, you go do your stuff. I go do my stuff, you know? And he wanted to go to Rome because historically, you know, what goes on in Rome and he wanted to take pictures. I mean, those are some of the greatest memories I, I had of my dad, definitely. Sir. Peace, Wyclef. My name Peace is Kaz. I'm from the Bronx. Um, I just want to know what do hip-hop means to you? Because when I hear Wyclef, it means the independent collective consciousness, a conscious way of life, of acknowledgement. But I want to know what hip-hop means to you. Well, I mean, for me, uh, the word... You know, the word, it's like if we can have our own religion, if we was, then our religion would be hip-hop. Because this is the only thing that allows us to morph into whatever form of independence and whatever thought or frame of mind that we have. Within this structure, we find a sense of belonging. Within this structure, it don't have to do w with what country you from, what language you speak, it has, all we do is we embrace each other, we embrace the culture. So for me, um, that's what hip-hop represents to me. We have time for two more questions. Give me one second, I'll come over here. I just wanted to ask, we talking about hip-hop, you know, um, you were, we know you as an MC first and foremost before you got into you know the carnival and everything else. How important is it to you as an MC that people remember you as a great MC? Because I feel like people sleep on you as an MC in general. Yeah, I think for me, I have ADD, and as 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 good as I was an MC when I was MCing is as good as I was with sheet music with the bass. You know, um, it's as good as a composer. Um, for me, unfortunately, I don't 
my whole life has never been driven on somebody uh, sleeping on me as, 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 as one of the best rappers. Far from wanting to have gone down like that. Um, MC means master of the ceremony. Um, when, I, when I go live and I rhyme, people said, oh man, we ain't know he still spit. Well, the spitting is something that we just born with. Like we grew up with it. It's naturally something that's part of us. I think though the the trap that I was able to escape, which a lot of rappers are no longer relevant in this space and time, to a six-year-old, to a seven-year-old, to an eight-year-old, to a nine-year-old, to a ten-year-old, is because the fact is that they just wanted to be the best MC. And I think for me, beyond wanting to be the best MC, it's more like, what is the best legacy? Because when I look at my daughter, I knew things were changing when my little sister, I remember at one time she was little and she was like, Dad. And she was like, Clef, could you believe it? I said, what's up? She was like, some, some, some big tall guy is trying to battle Nelly, you know? He doesn't stand a chance. Who does he think he is? Nelly's the best. Nelly's number one. You know, and I, I'm like, man, who's she talking about? So I go on the and, 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 and I go on the internet, and she's like, yeah, this tall guy right here, him. And then I look, I'm like, well, that's KRS-One. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, you know what's going on here? You know. Then I started noticing a shift. Now it got worse for me now, because my daughter is seven years old. If you watch the shows now, tell it on television. If you watch Nickelodeon, if you have kids and you would follow this thing, now every other show is a you can make it as a musician or a hip hopper type show that's on TV. So at seven years old now, she's basically freestyling and telling me that I'm whack. And this is how it has to go down or it's not going to go down. So it, it's showing us that what do we do? We embrace what they're doing. We give them the library and the history of what we know, because I feel that's the part that we got to be responsible. We got to make sure they know who KRS-One is. We got to make sure they know who Public Enemy is. This is we got to make sure they hear Nas early Illmatic. We got to make sure they understand all of this. Biggie Smalls, Tupac, West Coast, East Coast. And then we let them drive with their emotion. You know, that's how I see it. She had a question. Uh, I might have to bring my own mic. Here yeah. in the back. We'll take her question and we'll take your question. You know. Um, what kind of guitar do you play? Man, you know what? I pl I like Gibsons. I like Fenders. You know, and then I like sometimes just like like for example, you see this Pansa right there. I like it. It was built for me because it's very small, and sometimes I like small guitars that feel like toy guitars. You know, sometimes I don't really like the big ones, um, and. So it all depends. But my favorite guitar to play is acoustic guitar. It's my favorite one. The last one in the back. Hi, and good afternoon, everyone. Hi, Wyclef. Yes, um, sir. This is more on political kind of question. Um, in your opinion, what do you think um, would be a good, you know, starting point for getting Haiti back on to the right track? And, you know, do we see this happening in the next 10 years? What kind of time frame? Well, 
I mean, the good thing is this is my first book. There'll be seven of them, and I think by the time I'm done with all my books, ain't nothing nobody gonna say about me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so understand, eighty percent of a population living on less than two dollars a day. Right? Understand that we were raised in these United States of America. So with the knowledge that I have here, to take it back home, right? But understand, the, the majority of the rice trade going to Haiti is basically coming from here. So basically, you have over five billion of just rice basically going into a country. So in any situation, if, if we're gonna help that country, we gotta figure out how do we help them. And what that means is, we have to start an agribank system. And if you look at, like, Israel, for example, like, look at originally how Israel was. It was a desert. But think about the agriculture, the systematic on how they use it. It says, okay, you know what? And moving forward, this is what we're going to do. The greatest thing that Haiti possessed are two things, human capital and the soil. Because when you look at historically with Haiti, we was known for sugar, we was known for rice, we was known for all these things. So how do we set the country back to an independence forum where even though you have the World Bank, you have the United Nations, you have constant NGOs, I wouldn't want my country to go down as the country of NGOs. I would like it to go down as the country that at one time was being operated by NGOs and has rise to self-independence. C'est la vie. Uh, yeah? What's up, baby? What happened to your leg, man? You was playing ball? Skateboarding. Hello? I should have figured, yeah. Um, hi, th hi there, White Cliff. Um, so the so um the yours one of your songs called Riot off the Carnival Two um has a guest star, um, Serge Tankian. Now he's like the lead I know you said you're a big rock guy, so how did you like uh come in contact with him since he's like into like a more heavier scene than what you're in? Oh, okay, because you know, at at the time he's definitely as musicians, like, we don't really look at it like hip-hop guy, rock guy, country guy. That's more how the audience sees it. But when we all get together and we're in a club, like, you could punch up, like, I could play you stuff where Kenny Rogers is talking about me on records. Like, so as musicians, we more look for just, you know, like, if you're doing rock and I show up at a concert, I'm going to get the same thrill as if I'm at a reggae concert, if it's a dope reggae act. So um, for me, like, Serge was just an incredible artist. And similar styles on how we produce, because he produced from a classical, philosophical point of view, orchestrate, uh, orchestration. And, um, and then I, I do the same thing similar, and that's how we, we connected. All right. Well, everybody the, uh, join me thanking Anthony Boza and Wyclef Jean for the amazing talk. You getting ready to rock, Clef? So yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll rock. I'll rock. I'll rock something.
Said I'll be gone to November, I'll be gone to November. Tell my girl I'll be gone to November, I'll be gone to November, I'll be gone to November. David Hersick, I'll be gone to November. January, February, March, April, May. I see you crying, but girl, I can't stay. I'll be gone to November, I'll be gone to November. Hey, 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 and give a kiss to my mother. Girl, I gotta leave, please don't cry. When I come back, you know the limits is the sky. If death comes to me tonight, girl I want you to know that I loved you And no matter how tough I would pay Only to you I would reveal my tears Someone please call 911 I was president, I get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday, they go back to work on Monday. If I was president, if Wyclef was president, if I was president. Purpose, one love, win a house, love. All right, ladies and gentlemen, one last time, Wyclef Jean.